Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I hope you're doing okay. These are difficult times for many, and I know many people out there are struggling, especially now that we're in a pretty extreme, though I believe necessary, lockdown situation here in Melbourne. I feel that Joe and I are very fortunate in our situation. We have a small studio behind our house, so it's easily accessible for us when it comes to teaching classes online. But now that there's a five kilometer travel limit, I know that some people have it tough, especially teachers from overseas who might not qualify for any government assistance. My heart really goes out to you. Joe and I really want to offer what support we can, so we'd love to hear from you if you've got something to say about the current lockdown and your situation. We'd absolutely love it if you could send through a short audio recording, say two to three minutes, talking about how these lockdowns have affected you, your teaching and your income. Just email your submission to podcast at flowartist.com and we'll put these together in an upcoming episode. All right, so on to today's conversation. We're super excited about this interview with Anna Forrest and Jose Calaco. Jose and Anna obviously need very little introduction as they're both very well known around the world, having taught and influenced a whole generation of yoga teachers and students. A friend of the podcast requested that we speak with them after they had a wonderful workshop experience, and we particularly wanted to ask Anna and Jose about the relationships they share with First Nations culture of both Australia and America. It's a great conversation, and we're incredibly grateful to them for speaking with us. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia, registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. Now, it was a few months since we recorded this conversation, so we asked Jose for a short update on what him and Anna have been doing for the last few months, and he was kind enough to share an update with us. We'll play that now before we get into our conversation with him and Anna. Hello, Joe. It's Jose Calaco and Anna Forrest here on Orcas Island, USA. And despite what you hear, what's going on in the mainland in the USA, Anna and I are safe here on the island in a beautiful Anna's house, uh, 30 acres in lush forest with owls and eagles and deers and vultures. We're really enjoying actually the lockdown after five or six years of nonstop touring 35 cities and 20 countries a year. We've had the chance to settle down and we do, we're still very, very busy with our online channel and uh, running our business. Each day we do a nice lengthy yoga practice. I'm a vegan chef, so we're cooking more than ever. We're actually very, very healthy. And so much has changed, Joe. Since we last spoke, the world has gone absolutely crazy. And the USA is one of those places where just off the mainland here and not too far from here, there's riots and shooting and racial tensions, all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff going on. A lot of it is a countdown to the election coming up here in the USA. There's a lot of manipulation, lots of lies very hard to trust many people right now. So much is going on. But we are happy to announce that all during this lockdown, we've had the opportunity to finally record all our online yoga, music, ceremony, shamanism, philosophy. Joe, our prayers go out to Victoria and all Australia. We hear how harsh the lockdown is over there. Anna and I are just lucky that we were able to do the lockdown on a 30-acre forest. However, we, we send all our best wishes to Victoria and Australia, and we pray that our freedoms come back again. 
Well, Anna and Jose, thank you so much for speaking with us today all the way over in New Zealand in the beautiful Kawai Pura Pura. Could we start perhaps with your connections to First Nations culture? Would you like to share how your life and work within Indigenous communities informs what you share today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have been Director of Descendants Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Dance Company for 25 years. People can see us at descendants.com.au. We've travelled to the four corners of the planet. We have done the world's biggest events. We're over 40 countries we've visited. And this is where I got my background in Aboriginal culture. And my Aboriginal mother, spiritual mother, Imeldus Willis, came from the Yidinji and Kanju clans of far north Queensland. She is now deceased and we are still descendants still together. And this just gave us the idea. Anna had already been doing First Nations work in forest yoga, but I took it a couple of steps further by doing cultural exchange all over the world. While we're in Australia, we do Australian Aboriginal stuff. While we're in the USA, cultural exchange with the Native Americans or First Nations people in Mexico, in Canada. Everywhere we go, we like to do cultural exchange because First Nations have a spirituality which is beautiful and untouched by white middle-class sort of new age isms. So with the Aboriginal culture, it's the world's oldest culture. It goes for well over 50,000 years and it was well before yoga. And a lot of people say, what has First Nation philosophy, principles and culture got to do with yoga? And it actually has a lot to do with yoga. When we look at yoga, in the broader perspective as a place of learning and healing. And it's made forest yoga so much deeper and richer, bringing in live music, live performance, and the philosophies of these people into the yoga room because we need it more than ever today. One thing Anna and I touring 20 countries a year is we're learning that people, especially white middle-class society, is unhappier than it's ever been. And people are so close to suicide. Uh, this is what we learn in our speaking circles, that people that appear to appear to be very happy people constantly. Haunted by their depressions and their personal demons. Yeah. Neurotic and dysfunctional mind. So one of the aspects around the indigenous teachings that we bring in and when we ask our guests, medicine people to come in, it's like we feel that the indigenous peoples carry the keys of what we need to incorporate now in the middle of this climate change and this spiritual crisis that our people everywhere are going through. This level of disconnect and sadness and poisoned beings is, I think, at all time high from all my years of teaching. And I've been teaching over 40 years. And I feel that we are more poisoned now than we've ever been. And so far as how we're eating, so far as the drugs that are in the foods and just we're at a, at a really big crisis point. But the good news about being at a crisis point is it's a turning point. And so Jose and I were working with this spiritual pledge of doing our part and mending the hoop of the people. It's like we're, we believe that this can be a turning point worldwide. And that's what we're working for is to teach people how to care for themselves, each other, the planet, and to care for the animals and not just be like participating in this ongoing slaughtering of animals worldwide, which is killing the heart of the people in a lot of ways. And I know from your personal history, Anna, from reading your book and reading a lot of things that you share, your own path to healing was very much guided and facilitated by connecting with Native American communities and you're a medicine woman now. Would you like to share a little bit about your personal journey and maybe how it's really inspired you to 
share those gifts with others? Well, I was a pretty hopeless place when I started tapping into yoga. And when I went to yoga, it wasn't because I thought like, oh, this is going to save my life. But that is what happened. And the native teachings were at the heart post of that. But that came a few years after I started doing yoga. And so in yoga, I learned to get off of the drugs and the alcohol and smoking, and I became a vegetarian back in the 70s. But I found out at that time that the, that form of eating didn't work for me, and I didn't investigate it further because I only had a little bit of attention that I could spend on myself, and then I gave up because that was part of the old paradigm. Then years and years and years later, Jose and I got together, and I had enough generosity of heart for myself to investigate how do I deal with my food in a way that is congruent with my love of animals. Because I just had to shut off internally. It's like, okay, in order to live, I have to kill animals. And I actually found out that that wasn't true. I don't have to kill to thrive. And that was a really big realization because when I wrote Fierce Medicine, I was still eating meat and still thought that's the way I had to eat, but it's not. And I had to investigate farther to find out like there's a way that I can absolutely thrive as a vegan. And that took away these layers of shielding and a bit of hypocrisy that I was living with very uncomfortably. So one of the principal teachings since being director of Forest Yoga is I begun a veganism course within our teacher trainings. I have been vegan for over 30 years, a vegan teacher and a vegan cook. So it was very easy to give Anna the correct information and also a delicious diet. So I, cre I created for the yoga world the nine steps of conscious eating. My yoga teachers that I learned, oh, sorry, my vegan teachers that I learned from, I realized didn't have the full spectrum of teachings. So I had to step out and become the principal teacher and teach the nine steps of conscious eating, which included things like not eating garlic and onion, blessing <laughs> our food with love and gratitude, eating with the circadian rhythms, things that weren't like everyday principles. So that was one of the major things, besides, of course, the the First Nations and music stuff that I also brought, live music, into Forest Yoga. But that's how veganism became part of Forest Yoga, and it's been there for the last six, seven years now. I've been vegan for over 20 years as well, so I absolutely hear you on that. But I guess I've got a question around it where food is such a personal decision for people, and I mean... I don't know if eating entirely vegan is a decision that you can make for other people. Do, is there ever a kind of conflict between wanting to people to find their own path through life and to health that's right for them and also sharing what you believe in your heart is right for you and right for the planet? Sure, we're not, we're not pushing people to become vegan, but we also give them valuable information uh, because, of course, meat-eating, environmental damage and the holocaust of animals all comes hand-in-hand. And if you're ingesting the suffering of animals into your body, then you are carrying that vibration. So we're just giving the people the information. We can lead the horse to water, but we can't make them drink. So by no means are we shoveling it down people's throats, but we are giving valuable information. People don't realize the connection between the climate change and what they eat and depression and what they eat. Yes. And so th this is, we're teachers, we're educating people. We're educating. We're educating people in yoga, in diet. The human being comes in four parts. The body needs movement. The mind needs stillness. The emotions need expression. And the spirit needs nurturing. We are just giving these what we know. And Anna and I have a lifelong experience here. We are older than most yoga teachers going around. We have 10, 15, 20 years on the majority of the yoga teachers. And Anna has been the yoga teacher of the famous teachers, Shiva Ray, Sean Korn. So Anna is sort of like seniority in the USA today in the yoga world or one of the, the elders of that world. And I've been with the indigenous people for almost 30 years with music, indigenism, indigenous issues and veganism and we are in a position to share first-hand experiences we don't go from book knowledge we go from first-hand knowledge so when you asked about my 
connection to the Native American people, Native Canadian people, those are the ones that I've worked with, is I have lived on a reservation for years. I've done many different ceremonies. I've been adopted by informally by a few different people, but I just want to be really clear for people who want to draw this line. It's like my blood is not Native American blood. So I don't have that connection. I have a spirit connection. It's my spirit blood. Thank you so much for sharing that and also for being that bridge between those cultures and that wisdom which is so needed and so powerful in our world today and environmentally as well. Has it been an easy flow combining these different worlds of wisdom and these different influences and weaving together with the traditional Indigenous practice of yoga from South Asia, from India, and also weaving in everything that you've learned along the way in terms of modern anatomical knowledge and your other life experiences? Or has there been some soul searching as you've kind of thought about ways that these different traditions can sit together while remaining authentic to the source of all of these vast oceans of knowledge? Well, in a soul searching situation, there's always tumultuousness to go through. At least that's what I have found. And for years, I had these two separate lives. I was the yoga teacher and I was on the medicine road. And I didn't know how to bring them together and they were conflicting because I had to, I had my responsibilities to my yoga students and to my yoga center. And I also was being invited into these long ceremonies and into apprenticeship. And it was just like, how am I going to do this? I don't have enough hours in the day. And I don't have the weeks to take off to go be journeying on a mountain or something. And so I learned, I made it up. I learned how to take the ceremony off of the mountain and bring it inside of a yoga classroom and bring that sweetness and that vision questing. I had to create it in order to mend my own soul because I was being pulled in two different directions. And that's when I started creating yoga ceremony is bringing these ceremonial practices onto the mat. How do you vision quest on the mat? And so we set the intent every single class so people can vision quest for their deep needs on the mat. And we, we guide it some like now, like it could be like, this is building warrior's heart, or this is healing your back, or this is connecting to your spirit. These are some of the different classes that we set the intent. This is the intent. This is what you're working on. But it's general enough that every person in there can relate to it. And I had to bring it together. And that was, it has its own pain, but so what? Life has pain in it. Giving birth is very painful, but look what comes from it as a whole other being. So it's like one of the things that we teach is how to deal with pain. Because to think that we can go through life pain-free is a really odd fantasy. It's like, when have you ever had evidence of that being true? So stop being so afraid of pain and learn how to ameliorate it by right action, by learning how to quest for what you need. So you're not constantly being slammed by life because you're going in the wrong direction to take those as signals. So learning how to take those medicine wake-up calls so that you don't have to get slapped into waking up. And for me, it was very, very easy to incorporate everything that I could bring to forest yoga during a yoga class. I have been an artistic director in Sydney, not only with the Aboriginal people, but also in the flamenco, gypsy scene, Indian music. Back in the 80s, I was one of the big people at the forefront of the world music movement. And being an artistic director, I looked at the structure of a yoga teacher training course, and I looked at the structure of a yoga class, and I came up with a really ceremonial beginning, an intriguing midpoint, and then, of course, a happy ending, which everyone likes to walk out of the yoga class <laughs> with a spring in their step. So for me, veganism, shamanism, Aborigin Ab Aboriginality, cultural exchange, live music, dance, ancient healing techniques, poetry, philosophy, these are all things that I weaved into the class without making it overbearing, making a yoga class, a yoga experience. So here's the thing. 
we are still evolving seven years later. We are still refining every yoga class. So for me, it was very, very easy to incorporate and imprint what I could bring to forest yoga into the class. So I structured a class just like a, a brilliant live Aboriginal or flamenco or Indian show. So having beginnings, midpoints, endings, and people are getting a total musical, spiritual experience, something that I thought about nurturing all four parts of the self, the mind, body, spirit, and emotions, treating each sector. Now, I'll give you an example of how we started weaving together, Jose and I. It's like when we were first starting to expose to each other in our courtship hidden precious parts of ourselves, I was I started to talk to Jose about something I never talked to anybody about, which is I was experimenting with using song, medicine songs and bromery to reach into where people had problems in their body and help it reorganize and help it heal. Like I was like onto something. I could feel it with using sound as a healing. And so I hadn't spoken to anyone about this. And I brought this up to him and he looked at me and he said, my people have been singing into the bones for 40,000 years. And it was like, oh, we need to talk. <laughs> I need to talk. <laughs> I want to dive into that beautiful ocean of information. Sure. So I, I, I'm a keyboard player, guitar player, drummer, singer, and songwriter. 90% of all the music in a forest yoga class is written by myself. A lot of original music. And of course, we have guest musicians. And it's not overbearing. And we do not incorporate any traditional Indian culture, uh, the Oms and the, the Shantis and all that stuff. We stay away from that stuff. It's not for Anna and I. It may be for other people, but it's certainly not for Anna and I. And is that because you don't have that lived experience with that culture, learning about those particular musical styles? Well, I do. I do, actually. Back in the 80s and 90s, when I was a producer in Sydney, I worked with people like Nirmal, Jenna, and a whole list of real Indian musicians, real Indian people. And I incorporated them into many of my events, and I learned a lot but it just wasn't for me. Like 99% of what we see in yoga studios around the world is the on the shanties and this and that. That's not our expertise. So we decided to stick with what we know and what we do and to give people a different sort of experience. We also bring in what we love. And so with Jose, he's got this deep, deep connection and love to the Aboriginal kind of music. And I have some Native American songs that I use because that's what quickens my blood. That's uh, even Maori, I, I must mention, even yes. Maori. I have Maori friends in Sydney and New Zealand, and we will use the Maori powerful culture as well in ceremony. I actually worked with the cast of Whale Rider and also created an Aboriginal Maori fusion in the desert with the cast of Whale Rider and Descendants. So we have vast experience with First Nations people. And when people say, when you blend them together, is it wishy-washy? And I said, no, it's just two powerful cultures coming together and creating something extraordinary in the spiritual exchanges. Hello, Ran here. I just wanted to pop in to let you know what's going on at our studio, Garden of Yoga. Like many teachers out there, we've moved our teaching online and we recently launched a member section on our website. We have over 30 classes available at the moment and we're adding a couple of new ones every week. There are a couple of free samples available, but for the full experience, you can sign up for $40 a month. And this also gives you unlimited access to our live streaming classes on Zoom. For more details, go to gardenofyoga.com.au slash videos, and I'll leave a link in our show notes. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Jose and Anna. 
speaking of music, your your song "I Am More Spiritual Than You" is brilliant and and very humorous as well. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> uh, could you tell yeah, us about? I, yeah, sure. I, I I've never recorded that song. Like Anna and I just released an album called Cornucopia, which is doing fantastically well all around the world, and that includes ballads and poetry and my fusions with Aboriginal people and fusions with many, many world cultures. But I've never recorded I'm More Spiritual than you except for that. That one recording. That, that one was... recording. <laughs> um, and that's the one everyone asks you about. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Anna asked me to write a song, I'm More Spiritual Than You. A lot of the male people in my life were like I had some Aboriginal Native American men, some people from India, the state of Odissi, and and they were all very, very serious spiritual teachers, very serious, but angry as well. And they were always upset. They were always trying to tell me that I'm more spiritual than you. So that's where I got the idea that the idea first came to me, but Anna actually asked me to write it. Because what I found is that I, I train people to be teachers, but it isn't just a matter of being an asana teacher, though I, I feel the asanas are incredibly important. It's about being a teacher of life. And one of the biggest hurdles that people get stuck on is this, I'm more spiritual than you. So if I'm a vegan and you're a meat eater, I'm more spiritual than you are. There's always this proving ground and this this competition that people come into. And I hear it amongst the yogis in India, everybody. It's a human thing, like I'm more spiritual than you. Or I'm a level seven Reiki teacher. <laughs> or I'm this or I'm that. Yeah, I mean, you hear it in people all the time, whatever their personal, like, oh, I've done this and you haven't, therefore you have to listen to me and I I don't have to listen yeah. to you. So it's just like for, I call this for like intermediate students because that hopefully that's like where you're, you're still an intermediate person getting stuck on this. But it's like, this is a, a obstacle that people need to get by. They need to grow up past it. And I must say it was a little autobiographical as well when I wrote I'm More Spiritual Than You. Because when I started having firsthand experiences into the psychic phenomena of the dream time, not just reading about it, firsthand experiences, I told Anna about them and I told many people, wow, you've got to experience this firsthand. Word knowledge is just a shadow of real knowledge. So going from word knowledge to the actual thing was like, wow. So when I had these firsthand experiences and became a faith healer for many years in Sydney in the 80s and 90s. I didn't promote myself. It was just all underground. And there was a time there I believed, oh, wow, I'm more spiritual than you because I've had firsthand experiences. So it wasn't just about other people. It was about myself as well, keeping my own ego in check. Now, another aspect that came into that song is some of the teachings that we give in teacher training, it's like the exact words is like, wash your armpits and your mouth and your crotch, baby. Because I have to teach people how to do that because they are unconscious about it. And when, as a teacher, we do hands-on assists and they can be incredible, healing, helpful. But if the teacher stinks of garlic or onion or stinks because they didn't wash their crotch, the student is kind of holding their breath, waiting for this stinky human to go away. And that's unacceptable. And it's amazing to me how people don't recognize that they are not cleaning their crotch and asshole. And when they sit down behind a person's head in bridge, for example, to adjust them, that student is inundated with the stink of their crotch. And that's disgusting. It sounds like you're really doing a community service with that particular life lesson. <laughs> and so... You know, garlic and, onion. garlic and onion is a huge problem. Anna and I teach in the four corners of this planet, and whether it's Russia, China, Spain, United Kingdom, Canada, USA, every yeah. yoga room stinks of garlic and onion. Soon as you come into the class, people are perspiring garlic and onion and it's really really foul the only place that we were able to avoid that was all the ashrams in india are garlic and onion 
free. But the students aren't. Jainism, Buddhism, Jainism, Buddhism, Hare Krishna. There's a whole lot of people that do not eat garlic and onion because of the spiritual disconnection uh, when people are eating garlic and onion. So I, I can't believe it. Everywhere Anna and I go, people stink of garlic and onion. The flight here to Auckland yesterday, oh Anna sat next to the smelliest human being <laughs> in the history of the human race. He stunk of garlic. And not only did he stink out our area, he stunk out the whole plane. And people are totally unconscious that they really, really stink. Beautiful women, beautiful men, yoga teachers, they've all got garlic and reeking of garlic and onion. So this is one of the nine principles of conscious eating we teach people. People can listen or they can find their own way to garlic and onion. I found my own way back in 1991. This old Buddhist Chinese woman said, Jose, you are an amazing healer and clairvoyant, but you stink. <laughs> and, and I said, her name was Mother Chu. And I said, come on, mum, what do you mean I stink? And she goes, you always stink of garlic. I said, really? I can't smell it. And she goes, no, you can never smell it on yourself. And I said, but but garlic is really good for you, mum. What are you talking about? And mum just said, yeah, as an antibiotic, it is good. But as a cheap food source, it disconnects you from spirit. So then I started looking into Hare Krishna, Jainism and Buddhism. Is this true? The Hare Krishnas say you can't eat garlic and onion because you offend Krishna. And then I thought, look, is there any scientific evidence here? So I looked it up and I found that garlic oil kills 10,000 brain cells per teaspoonful. Not only do you stink ridiculously on garlic and onion, but it kills your brain cells. And NASA also didn't allow the astronauts to eat garlic and onion before their flights because of the loss of hand-eye coordination. And then just recently, the Queen banned garlic from Buckingham Palace because the guards and maids and servants stunk. And this wasn't good for public relations. It just goes on and on. People can investigate it themselves. But Anna and I just do not want our yoga classes stunk out and people really stink. So we have to be absolutely truthful that cleanliness is like godliness in this spiritual quest. One of the things that come up with meat eaters when they contemplate becoming vegetarian or vegan or when garlic eaters are hearing this is like, oh, my God, and they get into this whole deprivation thing. It's like there's so many beautiful spices that you can put in your food that won't make you smell like this. Because they don't understand it. They think, well, I like the smell of garlic. It's like when it's coming through your pores, it smells like dog shit. So get that it's vile and it's really unsexy. And there are wonderful, wonderful flavors that you can have. You don't have to go into deprivation. That, that's another thing, like with people that are afraid of becoming vegetarians, it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to get my protein. I'm not going to get my nutrition. And that's such a lie perpetuated for so long by the old paradigms of the meat and dairy industry. It's like you will get thoroughly nourished. You will build your strength. There is delicious ways to feed yourself besides having to chew somebody's leg. Yeah. Like I said, we don't push the vegan thing. We just give people valuable information, just like a yoga teacher in an adjustment gives information. Like if you eat organic, Organic food has 83% more nutrients. If you eat local food as opposed to tomatoes from Romania or Hungary, then you get the local vibration, which your soul will prefer eating fresh local produce than overseas. If you eat raw, you know, 70, 30, 50, 50, that cooking leaches out nutrients. If you go vegan, you are doing a big, nothing will benefit the planet more the animals more and your personal health more than adopting a vegan diet. Of course, look into it. I'm not just saying going vegan is the answer for everybody because it wasn't for Anna in the 70s or 80s. No garlic and onion. Don't overeat. This is the biggest. This is the biggest teaching of all, not to overeat because overeating is a modern day epidemic for vegans and meat eaters and it depletes our energy 
and turns our food into poison. We should always leave a bit of space in the stomach. So here's an example. When the mighty eagle overeats, she can't fly anymore. And then she becomes prey to whoever can get her while she's on the ground. And eating with the circadian rhythms, I won't even get into that, but people can look up the circadian rhythms. Always listen to your body for allergies. For instance, Anna is a vegan, but she can't have rice, soy, or grains. So that's poison for her. And of course, blessing your food with love and gratitude, this is something that the indigenous people have been doing for 60,000 years. So when our tribe caught it, the Aboriginal people were actually 90% vegan. There was no dairy products, you know, 60,000 years ago. And whenever there was a catch of a goanna or a kangaroo, there was a ceremony where the people blessed the kangaroo or the snake or goanna, whatever they were eating, and they asked the spirit of the snake or goanna to come into their spirit. So the two spirits would always become one. So one of the biggest arguments I get, Jose, Jose, from meat eaters, they go, yes, come on, indigenous people were hunters, this and that. Hunting was a spiritual experience for the Native American and Aboriginal people. Factory farming, which we have today, which was created in 1950, basically equates to a holocaust of animals, is not a spiritual experience. And the death of these animals, uh, they killed in front of one another and they put their toxins into the body just before death. This is passed on to the consumer. I'm definitely with you on the horrors of factory farming and like, as I mentioned before, like really passionate about animal rights and environmentalism as well. And I know that you guys are really dedicated to health and healing, but there is also this dark side in the yoga industry and especially in the commercial aspects of the yoga industry about eating pure and people using yoga and a yogic diet kind of as an eating disorder, depriving themselves or feeling like you have to look a certain way to step onto the yoga mat. And I know, Anna, you've had your own struggles with bulimia, I believe. How do you navigate this paradigm when people step up to the yoga mat and really like allow people that space for self-love and self-nurturing and not just twist these principles into another way that they can deprive themselves of the nutrients that they need? Well, they need to go after this basic addiction of sickness in their relationship to food and learn how to come into good relationship with food. And what Jose briefly mentioned around learning to pray over your food, this was part of my healing from bulimia is to not throw away the life force of the food that I was eating. It's like not wasting it by puking it up and learning how to welcome that life force into my life force. So I'm feeding my life force instead of destroying it with my own stupid behaviors. Because when it comes really down to it, this whole puking thing or drinking or doing drugs or smoking, it's really stupid behavior. And people who want to get offended because they are doing those behaviors, hear what I'm saying. This is stupid. You're destroying your own life force. Stop it. Learn how to build your luminosity and not destroy it and deplete it. Care that much. So for me, I would put my, I'd have my plate of food there. And I'd put my hands on either side of my food and run my energy through my hands. And from a heartfelt way, ask that food to align with me in the best possible way. And then I would eat being really conscious of that food, not like reading or working on my computer or none of that. Just like really concentrating on bringing that food in as a blessing and not giving into my craziness well oh this food is bad and i'm gonna have to throw it up and la 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 just not allowing that anymore it's like no longer believing that garbage and starting to incorporate living differently it takes a really strong stance like no i'm not gonna poison myself anymore no 
no more. And I remember reading in your book as well how you've written how your journey through therapy and yoga really supported each other and that's also something that you encourage for other people like to get help when you need it with these issues. Sure. It's like going to someone who has navigated the eating disorders or the abuse disorders or whatever the problems are, navigated it hundreds and hundreds of times and studied it. It's good to have experts on your side to help you navigate what may be a first-time journey for you. Just like you go to a yoga teacher to help you navigate through the mystery of the asanas or the principles of yoga, you go to people who can help you navigate your problems. I think therapists are very important. They, it's like that's their job is to help you get new resources and new tools for navigating and solving your problems. But they, the therapists, just so people don't go there with the wrong idea, the therapist doesn't solve the problem for you. They teach you new ways of looking at things so that you become a better problem solver. So to the people listening to this, I advocate, like, don't be afraid of having problems. Life has problems. Just become a good problem solver. It can be really fun, like a big Dharma joust. It's like, I'm going to use this problem as a way to grow and learn new resources, then it can get exciting. Yeah, I've heard that phrase before, how the things that we consider as obstacles on our path, that's the path, like overcoming those obstacles and navigating that, that's actually what spiritual growth is. Yes. Exactly. We get, even to this day, Anna and I encounter many, many rocks, and within every rock there is always a diamond. So Anna and I... We take the force of the rock and learn from the rock and we come away with a diamond for each experience. Rock is obstacle. And I know, Anna, like when you began your yoga practice, you were in a lot of physical pain and emotional pain and had some really severe injuries. And yet now forest yoga, it's known as a really strong style physically. I'd love to hear about your own journey and also is making this practice still accessible to people who might come in with the type of injuries and restricted movements that you had when you came to yoga still a focus for you? Of course, it's, it's, it's woven into the very creation of forest yoga that this is a healing and self-evolving practice. What does that mean is we teach people how to take responsibility for their own evolution, which is really fun and sexy. So let's say you come in, you got a back injury. We teach you poses that help your back heal. We teach you how to strip away the numbness so you can pick up on the signals that are either helpful or hurtful. So whether you're in a workshop situation or much more in depth, a teacher training situation, you start learning what to do about the constant flow of information that you're getting and respond appropriately to it. And one of the things that when Anna and I started working together, I said, look, Anna, we have 22 hours off the mat and we have two hours on the mat. So I think that we should create, especially for our teacher trainings, to guide people through the 22 hours off the mat yoga off the mat. And this is where we came with the principles of attending to the physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional being. So we offer stuff off the mat for everybody as well, because the majority of our life is off the mat. And like you you were asking me about the my yoga beginnings. I was training horses. That's where I got a lot of my injuries. And my anguish was not really being met. I I had no tools for it. I was suicidal. And I didn't have a good reason to live. So part of what we help coach people on is find a purpose for being alive. Like we're actually alive in a very exciting time. There's an old Chinese saying that's actually considered a curse. It's like, may you live in interesting times. Well, we do live in interesting times. We're living in a climatic crisis time and yet i ask people we ask people to start to examine like you somewhere in your spirit ways you chose to incarnate 
at one of these huge crisis times of humanity, somewhere in here, you have a purpose. And there's so many people that come to us that really want to have a, a significant contribution. Yoga is not enough. Bottom line. We need to find ways after sleeping of how to use our hours that serve and nurture our spirit. So one thing that I have brought to Forest Yoga is for yogis to begin a program of insight off the mat. And a program of insight off the mat may include acting, singing, music, dancing, a lot of yogis that come to us and they're, they're so suicidal, they're so bitterly unhappy. And this is why Anna and I have to think off the yoga mat as well. So to begin a program of insight is very important. What we've learned that a lot of yogis were dancing at one time or singing one time or playing an instrument one time. And now they haven't done that for 10 years, 15 years. We had one case at our Berlin teacher training where a woman stopped singing for 24 years. And I said, why? And she said, because I got married. And I thought, well, that's not a good reason no. to stop. <laughs> she got married. And then someone said, yeah, Jose, I used to be a guitarist and I stopped why? Because I started work. Or I used to be an actor and now all these cases of people dropping their dreams and love for relationships or for work or because they didn't have enough time. So one thing that I always instill in the forest yogis is begin or reconnect with your program of insight off the mat. It's really important. It's like people get these weird either or mentalities that are inaccurate. For example, oh, I had to drop the violin because it, it wouldn't support me financially. It's like, this is food for your soul. It, it, it isn't necessarily, it don't make it the be the end all for, oh, whether or not you can make a living from playing your violin or from doing your art. You need your art for your soul. Feed your soul, make that priority. And if it isn't working out that that is something that supports you financially, then do whatever it is that pays the bills. But you need this. Just like when you eat food, it doesn't support you financially, but you need it, right? And one of the other of those weird either or dichotomies that I see as well is how your spiritual inner work and the activities that you do that feed your soul can support you in the outer work that we need to do out in the world. Because as we've mentioned a few times, like our planet is in crisis and I've got a question around, like, do you think it is a responsibility of a yoga to take positive action out in the world? And how does our own inner work and our practice support this? Yeah, absolutely. It's important. Like we said, the majority of our hours are off the mat. And the bottom line is the universe needs evolution. It's evolve or die. It's been shown with the dinosaurs. It's been shown with certain vegetations, plants and minerals that everything in the universe is moving towards a, an evolution. And yoga is such an important part of the evolution with sorrow and unhappiness at an all time high on the planet, at least moving the body in a, in a yoga class is a beginning to stilling the mind and being away from the problems for some time. But Anna and I encourage yogis to make every day count because we don't know when our last day on this planet will be, to incorporate yoga as a daily practice, to eat a vegan diet, to nurture what your soul longs for with a program of inside music, blah, 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 or whatever, to have a walk and connect with the animals and nature. This is the way indigenous people lived. And they were, this is before civilization, and they were much, much happier than we were. So yes, technologically, the human race has come a long way. Spiritually, no, not that much. The Roman Empire for a thousand years ruled by bloodshed and there's just been war all throughout our history and things are not much better these days. Society 
puts a civilized coating on violence these days, violence on Facebook, violence on Instagram. Really, everyone needs to do their part in healing the planet, but it's got to come with healing yourself first. You can choose destiny or stupidity. Destiny is when we follow our highest calling and the true course of life. Stupidity is when we go after revenge, hatred, and all this other stuff, and that takes us off our path. So with this following your true course of healing, I know many people say, like, I don't know what that is. And it's like, that's because you need to quest for it. You need to quest for it. That's why we set up a vision quest on the mat, is to give people a, a space to begin this deep inquiry. Like, what really matters to me? And what needs to just be sloughed off as garbage? What matters? What makes my life precious? And so we teach people to not waste the moments of their life. Like how much time do you spend scrolling through Facebook and watching TV or you know, just pissing away the moments of your life? And it's like, don't do that. Your life is precious. I know for me, way back in the dark ages, I didn't consider my life worthwhile at all. And it took a long time to recognize and to build self-respect. And part of what I did to build self-respect is start behaving in ways that made me build self-respect. So drinking, doing drugs, doing stupid things built my self-loathing. Puking and bulimia built my self-loathing and to stop doing those things and do things that built my self-respect and then taking the moments to actually bathe in that like, wow, I just did this thing. I helped someone learn a yoga pose or I, I took away some pain with them or whatever it was that I enjoyed that I built some self-respect. And then to reflect on that and to immerse in that instead of always immersing in my neurosis. These are the things that we're teaching is how to focus and immerse in things that build your self-respect, that build your luminosity. And also we teach to disobey fear. Look, we all have fear. Anna and I have fear as well. You know, we're not saying we've overcome it. We disobey fear. And once we we go through this process, everything that we want is ultimately on the other side of that fear. So if we stop doing things just because of fear, nothing in the world would happen. So we make fear an ally. And when you make fear an ally, fear sort of starts working for you, not against you. So how does that work? It's like instead of getting paralyzed or immediately go to fight or flight, right? That's our, that's our old archetypes is use when your fear comes up, use that to become very alert. That's what fear is supposed to do as an ally is bring all of your senses into high alert and then proceed alert into whatever the experience is, whether it's a pose or into a relationship that you care so deeply about that it scares you or whatever it is. Don't ignore fear. That is not the correct use of it. You have to learn to work with it and not be overpowered by it, but use it as like a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. Nice. And you're both also known for being a really powerful presence as teachers and space holders. So how do you encourage people to sort of tap into their own inner strength and authority and not sort of get swept up in the group? Yeah, well, we never, following the light of another leads to darkness. So Anna and I, we give people the tools, but ultimately those people must Wisdom is knowledge applied. So we give the knowledge and we give it again and again and again and again. And some people have been with us for many years and they're still yet to apply the knowledge. Seven years later, we ask, well, how's it going? Have you applied anything to your life? No, it's still just become an intellectual process. We like to inspire people. So when people see Anna Forrest or Jose Calaco, they go, wow. They're just normal people. We are not enlightened people. We are just people living above the demons. And it's possible. That's what is possible for every listener out there to live above your demons. So for example, like, oh, what you know, what do you mean live above your demons? Well, if you have some little thing in your say in your head saying, 
oh, I need to go have a drink because this was such a hard day or because that's the only way I'm funny or that's the only way I'm creative. It's like, there's your demon. Stop obeying your addictive voices and start listening for something wiser. Ultimately, we want our students to become the spiritual teacher and their own guru. We don't want to be seen as gurus. We are just there to inspire people of what's possible within, still within living the parameters of fear. It's a kind of cool word, the, the word guru. I was just thinking about that as guru translated means remover of darkness. And so it's like, how do you do this for yourself? You use the yoga poses, you use a program of insight, you use clean diet to move the goo out. <laughs> darkness in and of itself is not a bad thing because light and dark are a constant interplay when you stand out in the night sky and look up there's a lot of darkness with those brilliant points of light you need to have the night sky in order to see the stars so that kind of darkness is also inside of us and always being in daylight so to speak isn't it either it's like there's great beauty in amongst the star fields and our minds and our hearts reach into the star fields, but we have to be standing in the night to see them. So recognize those aspects of yourself. That is the beauty of the star fields and the beauty of daylight. Both are inside of us. I think that's such a powerful teaching to really explore who you are in all of your dimensions and then that's what we're working with it's not about denying the parts of ourselves that are uncomfortable to look at in fact it's actually looking deeper into those parts of ourselves and exploring why you know and also some of those really nasty murky parts of ourselves like the addict it's like this work isn't about killing the addict it's about retraining it because frequently within the addict is our sensitive artist that got perverted along the way and so as you start retraining that person that wants to reach for the big experience or the drugs or oblivion and start teaching that aspect to do something different like paint or to bring in that heartfelt emotions into the poses. It's like teach that aspect of you that got addicted to substances or, or crappy behavior. Teach that part of you something else. That's where learning to teach ourselves is really important. Do you find that sometimes people bring that part of themselves into their yoga practice in a way that's unsafe, like that addiction to adrenaline and to pushing themselves and to like stretching their bodies into shapes that maybe aren't for them that day. Is that something that you need to navigate in this strong practice? Always. People will bring their neurosis with them everywhere. Yeah, they'll bring it into the yoga room. They'll bring it into uh, the office. They'll bring it into relationships. But the yoga room is no different. People bring who they are into the yoga room. And, yes, I had many years in Bikram yoga earlier on in my career, and I could see people push themselves to the absent. Same with Ashtanga, but Ashtanga people push themselves to the limit. There were shoulder injuries, knee injuries, all sorts of injuries, people pushing themselves into postures they cannot do. So yet the answer to your question is yes, people really push and push and push to themselves towards injury. But forest yoga is a safe practice and we try to make it as safe as possible. And our sequencing is safe sequencing it's vastly different to Ashtanga and other forms of yoga. Anna created a yoga which anyone could do, beginner, intermediate or advanced, and was not injury free because you can't stop the person's idiocy in some postures. And they bring in their injuries mm -hmm. with them. I mean, that's part of the work is how to heal these injuries. But the neurosis is also what I would consider an injury. And so learning to work with your own neurosis, like pushing and being numb in your practice and competing with the person next to you, all of this is the stuff to navigate and learn how to be wiser instead of perpetuating your own neurosis or stupidity. It's like when it's put, like no one wants to be stupid, but when it's pointed out like, look, if you keep doing this, you keep forcing your knees into lotus before they're ready and your knees get injured, this is stupid action. 
learn to open up your hips and open up your knees in an intelligent way. And then the beauty of Lotus can be yours too. Or maybe that pose will never be yours. So what? Find out how do you create freedom inside. And that is such a sweetness. And you find out how to use the poses as allies instead of using them as an achievement over the person next to you on the mat. I mean, really, what a dumb thing to base your life on. Absolutely. So I guess we've nearly reached an hour, so we might need to wind things up. But I do have one more question, and that is if you could distill everything that you have both learned and everything that you both teach down to one core essence, if that's even possible, what do you think that one thing would be? (laughs) Okay. Am am I allowed to swear? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, I just, just checking because people get offended. Yoga teachers should not swear. Why? Like, I mean, we're everyday people, Anna and I. We use power mantras. That's my one is to disobey the motherfucker in your mind. <laughs> no. Everyone in the mind has a bully. I call it the motherfucker. In Indian culture, they say you've got to let go of the ego. You've got to do it. Not really. Everyone's trying to kill the ego. Stop. Just disobey the motherfucker, the part of the mind which is the bully, which freezes you with fear and stops you actually participating in life. We do need to co-create with the ego. I co-create my music with the ego. I co-create forest yoga classes with the ego. I do a lot of things. I do cooking with the ego. So we were born with an ego. It's, it's not an accident. But there is one part of the mind which I call the motherfucker. And I think everyone can relate to who this is. <laughs> so for me, it's disobey the motherfucker in the mind. With the ego, we teach people that the ego is an inherent part of us and needs to be groomed and healthy part of us. So so far as that's Jose's, and I totally agree with it, but mine is more like to ask the question inside, this is how I judge almost everything, is does this, whatever it is, this action, this thought, does this brighten or dim my spirit? And I use that as a guide because ultimately my job is embodying my spirit and living as my spirit dictates, not as my fear, my neurosis, any of that dictates. It's like I want to be true to my spirit. So to ask this question, asking good questions is powerful. And for me, this really works. Does this, whatever it is I'm looking at, doing yoga or about to take some drink of alcohol or a snort of cocaine, is this going to brighten or dim my spirit? And be honest with the answer. And how Anna and I, too, correlates is that the motherfucker will say, don't do yoga, let's go out for a drinking session or let's have a snort of cocaine. So that's the part of the mind we need to keep control over. Yeah, it's like learning to discern the difference between the voice of your spirit and the voice of your addiction. They're really different. But like we hear people feedback to us all the time, the voice of their addiction, and they think it's the voice of their spirit. Like, oh, my spirit said I needed to drop out of this course because it's too much. It's like you're just hitting your shit, my friend. And you think what you are listening to is the voice of your spirit, but it's not. It's not. Learn the difference. If your inner voices is telling you you need to do this cocaine or you need to fuck your friend's husband or wife or you need to do these things that you know are ultimately destructive, that's not the voice of your spirit. That's the voice of motherfucker. There's a difference. Well, thank you so much for leaving us on that powerful note that I think everyone can relate to. (laughs) (laughs) Just before we go, was there anything else that you wanted to share or you wanted to add? I really want people to come and work with us personally. We go all around the world so people can reach us. And some people, they get in their head, motherfucker says, oh, I'm not advanced enough or I'm, I'm too old or I'm too stiff or I'm too fat or I'm too whatever. I can't be there. And it's like all these students need to do is show up. And it's our skillfulness to meet that student where they're at whether they're missing a limb or whether they've just got heart surgery or whatever the problem is, we can meet them and give them appropriate action depending on what their challenges are. So please don't let that stop you. While we are here on this planet, we really want to make personal contact with you and show up. 
we have wonderful gifts for you. Beautiful. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for taking time out of thank your you world tour to talk to us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your New Zealand time and the rest of your travels. Well, we will. And we actually love doing interviews, so thank you. Oh, great. <laughs> that was great talking to you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anna and Jose. It was a really interesting conversation, a lot of it about garlic and onions. All right, so we're planning to take a short break for the next few weeks. But as I mentioned at the start of the episode, if you'd like to send through a short recording about how the lockdown has affected you, please email it to podcast at flowartist.com and we'll put something together over the next few weeks. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Get us music from gosoul.bandcamp.com. Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and Asia. We'd also like to honour the traditional custodians of the unceded land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui, big, big love. Oh, 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 oh